we look at what Paul writes about our human condition before God converted us, we need to be clear that this description by him is a portrait of every one of us believers. Paul is not giving us a picture of just some of us or of just some of the Ephesian saints of what the worst of us and the Ephesians were like. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of each one of us, of all of us who were apart from the Lord God. Well, to look now at Paul's description, we see that he gives us three truths in verses 1 through 3 about our former condition. Uh, first, he says, we were dead. Look at verse 1 and the first part of verse 2 of Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Of course, the deadness that Paul is referring to here is a spiritual deadness. Says Paul, we were spiritually dead at one time. To be spiritually dead means to be unable to really appreciate spiritual things. One can do nothing of himself, of herself, to please God. It means to be without, totally devoid of spiritual life. Just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli. So a person spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things. A corpse does not hear the conversation going on in the cemetery, has no appetite for food or drink, feels no pain, is dead just so spiritually with the unsaved person. His spiritual faculties are not functioning and they cannot function until God gives life. Even though he sees physically, he is blind spiritually. Even though she hears physically, she is deaf spiritually. We are completely powerless spiritually because of transgressions and sins. Someone has written, the unbeliever is not sick, he is dead. He does not need resuscitation, he needs resurrection. All lost sinners are dead. And the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. 
The derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader, but both are dead in sin. And then the one who wrote those words goes on to say this. This means that our world is a graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live. That, first of all, is what we were like before God transformed us. (laughs) And it's not the start of a very pretty picture, is it? We were not lovers of God. We were not ever seeking to obey him and serve him. I don't know how many times I have been with unbelievers who have painted a rather pretty picture of themselves and their relationship with God. No, no, we were not like that. We were blind to the glory of Christ. We were deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We had no appetite for the true God. No sensitive awareness of his personal reality. We were without spiritual life, believer, at one time. Second, Paul says we were enslaved. Verse 2 and the first half of verse 3 of Ephesians 2 in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. At one time, not only were we lacking any spiritual life, but we were also caught up in doing that which was wrong. We were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to evil forces over which we had no victory. What were those evil forces? Very simply, we read the world, the devil, our sinful nature. Here are the words. We followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. The world, The world is that part of this society which is organized without reference to God. It is what we might call today secularism. It is a whole social value system which leaves God out. I think good illustrations of the world that I could give would be to say, 
Look at the media. Look at so many of our educational institutions. Look at our civil governments today. They have no reference or positive reference to God at all. And at one time, we were caught up in that. We left God out. As J.B. Phillips has put it in his translation, we drifted along the stream of this world's ideas of living. The world. The devil is a powerful fallen angel who, with his demons, constantly opposes God and all that is good. He is the ruler of the kingdom of evil. And before God converted us, we were influenced by him. More. 2 Timothy 2.26, he had taken us captive to do his will. And we were not able to escape from his trap. He led us to disobey God and to oppose good. Good as far as God defines it. And then our sinful nature. It is that fallen nature with which we are born and that controls our mind, our will, our heart in a fallen way. We used to act according to our sinful nature. I read that a preacher once announced as his topic, why your dog does what it does which I guess uh, caused some dog lovers to come out to hear him. What he had to say was obvious. A dog behaves like a dog because that is its nature, because it has a dog's nature. We, at one time, we read in the word of God, behaved like a sinner because we had a sinful nature. What were we before God's great power and love were displayed in our lives? We were also enslaved to the world, the devil, and our flesh. We were dead. We were enslaved. But Paul is not done. He has not yet completed his description of our pre-Christian state. He has one more unpleasant truth to tell us about ourselves. And that is this. We were also condemned. Notice the last part of verse 3 of Ephesians 2. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. 
Whose wrath? God's wrath. God's wrath is a very unpopular subject. For the most part, people do not like to think about it, talk about it, hear about it. They try hard to put it from their minds as far as it will go. I remember reading in a sermon by Dr. D. James Kennedy how he asked three people who were Christians what they thought in reference to hell before they became Christians. And Dr. Kennedy went on to say they all said the same thing. They were all in agreement. I tried not to think about it. I tried to put it away from my mind. But ignore it or not, there is a wrath of God. There is a personal, righteous, constant wrath on God's part to evil. God has refused to compromise with evil. Instead, he has resolved to condemn it. And we, says Paul, before we were saved, were also under that wrath. In fact, says Paul, we were justly condemned by God in light of our birth. The sinful nature with which we were born deserved God's judgment. We see that in the words, we were by nature objects of wrath. Before we were saved, Paul also says, we were headed for eternal separation from God. Yes, we were, we were headed for hell. I, I don't know about you, but just the mention of God's wrath sobers me up. God's wrath is indeed a horrible thing. Isn't it great, though, believer, that I am able to put what I have just said about God's wrath in the past tense? Isn't it wonderful to know that God's condemnation of us is behind us because of his grace and love to us? That there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is true. That is true, you know. Unless, of course, you are not in Christ Jesus. If you have never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, then you are still under God's wrath. You are still headed to eternal separation from him. May I say this to you, if that is your case. In Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, the word of God, a question is asked and then an answer is given. The question is, what 
must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith, forsaking all, I take him as my Savior and as my Lord. Well, death, slavery, condemnation. Hear it again. Outside of Christ, we were dead because of transgressions and sins, enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and condemned under the wrath of God. But I have read, Paul didn't write Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 to only or primarily tell us about our fallen condition. He did so to tell us about the wonderful change that God has brought about in our lives. He did so to tell us of God's tremendous working for us who believe. Verse four of Ephesians two then begins with a mighty adversative, but God. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were condemned, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Let's see now exactly what God, by his grace and compassion, has done to us. And then let's see why he has done it. First, what has God done to us. I can give it to you in one word. God has saved us. He has saved us from death by giving us spiritual life. He has saved us from slavery by giving us freedom and power to do what's right. And he has saved us from condemnation by giving us forgiveness and peace with him. In both verse 5 and verse 8 of Ephesians 2, Paul makes the same glorious assertion. It is by grace you have been saved. In a word, God has rescued us, delivered us, saved us, believer. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper because our text, our passage goes deeper. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 
It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Uh, God performed three activities on behalf of us to save us from death, slavery, and wrath. Here are the three activities. Verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with Christ. Verse 6, he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Just as Jesus was quickened, raised, and seated by the Father, you remember the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. So, we were quickened, raised, and seated by the Father along with Jesus Christ. What God did to his Son, he did to us by linking us to him. Dr. John Stott, who is uh, helping me this morning with our message, has said this, fundamental to New Testament Christianity is this concept of the union of God's people with Christ. He goes on, what constitutes the distinctness of God's people? Not just that they admire and worship Jesus, not just that they assent to the Apostles' Creed, not just that they live by certain moral standards, no. What makes them distinctive is they are a people who are in Christ. And by virtue of their union with him, they actually share in his life, resurrection, and enthronement. My friends, in the unseen world of spiritual reality, there God has blessed us in Christ. There he has seated us with Christ. There we are sitting on thrones with the Lord Jesus. So, in Christ, God has given us a new life, a new victory, and a new position. We were dead, but God in Christ has made us spiritually alive and alert. We were in captivity, but God in Christ has released us. We were condemned, but God in Christ has acquitted and even enthroned us. What has God done? He has saved us. How? By uniting us to the Lord Jesus. I heard a preacher once say, if what you have just heard doesn't bless you, 
then your blesser is busted. If what you have just heard doesn't impact your heart in a positive way, then something is wrong. Something is amiss. What you have just heard should bring about appreciation, praise, thanksgiving, a greater, a greater desire to live for the Lord Jesus, a desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If what you have just heard, that you are saved by union with Christ, doesn't bless you, then your blesser is busted. One more thing this morning. Have verses 7 through 10 open before your eyes. Because there, Paul is going to tell us why God in his grace and compassion saved us. Again, have those verses before your eyes. Paul gives us two reasons here as to why God saved us. First, in verse 7, he says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Or, as he put it in chapter 1 and verse 6, why has God saved us? To the praise of his glorious grace. Someone has written, we often have the idea that God saves sinners mainly because he pities them or wants to rescue them from eternal judgment. But God's main purpose is that he might be glorified. His creation reveals his wisdom and power. His church reveals his love and grace. Look outside. See God's wisdom and power. Look in here. See God's love and grace. We are for the glory of God. Dr. John Stott has written, towards the end of my time as a theological student, the principal of my school retired and a portrait of him was unveiled. In expressing his thanks, he paid a well-deserved compliment to the artist. He said that in the future, he believed, people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man, but rather, who painted that portrait? My friends, God has saved us to have people ask in praise and wonder, 
who did that? Who did that loving, gracious thing to them? Who gave them life? Who delivered them from enslavement? Who took away God's wrath? Who did that? Are you hearing this? God has saved us to the praise of his glorious grace. We are to the glory of God. And then second, in verse 10, Paul says that God has also saved us to do good works. Let me read verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A lot could be said here, but let me simply say this. Among the many good works that God has saved us to do is especially the good work of communicating the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Christ say at the calling of his very first followers? Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. What were the last words of our Lord Jesus on earth to his followers? You shall be my witnesses. Among the numerous good works that God has saved us to do is especially the good work of sharing Christ with others. How in Christ, death, slavery, condemnation, are no more. How in Christ people are saved to the glory of God. A pastor told about a Christian lady who often visited a retirement home near her house. One day she noticed a lonely man sitting staring at his dinner tray. In a kindly manner, she asked, is something wrong? Is something wrong, replied the man in a heavy accent. Yes, something is wrong. I am a Jew and I cannot eat this food. What would you like to have, she asked. I would like a bowl of hot soup. She went home, prepared the soup, and after getting permission from the office, took it to the man. And in succeeding weeks, she often visited him and brought him the kind of food he enjoyed, and she would tell him about Jesus being the Messiah. And eventually, so I read, she led him to Jesus being his Messiah. I pass that story along to you so that you won't think that preaching 
is the only way to speak of Christ. There are many ways to tell people the good news of the Lord Jesus. Be aware of that. And do it. Do it. But also remember, God has prepared in advance many good works for us to do. And he has also equipped us to fulfill those good works. And so I say, in light of God saving us, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with thanksgiving. Oh, glorify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, in a sense, we should bow before you and spend hours giving you praise and thanksgiving for what you have done in our lives as believers. Thank you for reminding us this morning of this truth. And please, please use this message in each one of our lives. Use it to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And use it to encourage us to be people who are thrilled and joyful to have union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.